Good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. If you're uh, joining us online, welcome to you as well. So glad you're here with us today. As uh, Alexa was just saying, it is Palm Sunday on the Christian calendar, this beautiful celebration of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem for the last day. It was the beginning of Holy Week, uh, approaching the Passover and the work on the cross and the resurrection. So a week from today is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and looking forward to being with you for that joyous celebration as well. Last week I mentioned that we are trying to shore up our volunteers and our children's and other areas, and um, we still need some more help with that. So if you'd be willing to to uh, give some time, that would be great. Uh, in fact, the response to all of that last week was a bit underwhelming, and so uh, I'm, I'm not just talking. Uh, we really need some help, so thanks for doing that. You can sign up on the app or uh, stop at the kiosk, one of the kiosks on the way out. Appreciate your help with that. Today, rather than uh, reading our scripture as we traditionally do at the beginning of the message, I have three different references that we're going to to read together as we work our way through this important subject of the triumphal entry of Jesus. And as it turns out, there are at least three of these special events that have occurred in history and one yet to occur future. And I hope that it's an inspiration to you and a, and a means to strengthen your faith in Christ. So uh, we'll just go ahead and get started. If you have the outline in front of you, it's on the app there. Here's the first moment that we discovered Jesus entering into Jerusalem in a triumphant way. This is the more traditional Palm Sunday reference, and I want us to read it together. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, and of course, here are the words on the screen. And so let's read it out loud. We don't, you can remain seated, but let's, let's read it out loud together, okay? You ready? They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, can't hear you very well, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here we have Jesus who comes into Jerusalem as the King. And he's acknowledged by the crowd as the king. And there is much rejoicing and celebrating. They, they are reminiscing about the miracles they've seen Jesus perform. And so it's a big day. And he came riding into Jerusalem that day on the foal of a donkey, this colt. So it wasn't the main animal. It was the, it was the foal of this animal. And you can almost visualize him sitting on this colt and maybe having to pull his feet up just a little bit so his feet aren't dragging on this animal. I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, an impressive display, but it was an appropriate display. In fact, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, make these people be quiet. They shouldn't be calling you king and shouldn't be, shouldn't be worshiping you this way. And Jesus said, no, no, you, you misunderstand you see, reality is actually happening here today because as it turns out, I am the king and I should be recognized as king. And if these people weren't crying out in my honor today, then the very stones upon which we stand would cry out. You see, worship is going to happen here today. 
and there isn't anything in the universe that's going to stop it because I am the king. So there is this first triumphal entry, which again is what we celebrate traditionally on this Palm Sunday each year. Now, if we move to the, to the, to the next idea of Jesus making a triumphal entry, we have to look to the Psalms. And David, King David, wrote most of the Psalms, and we have to essentially say that David must be numbered among the prophets. He was a man after God's own heart. He had his failures and flaws, and yet God used him in a powerful way, and so we have to number him among those who could see the future a bit. For example, the sequence of Psalms 22, 23, and 24 give us confirmation of this, of this fact. Now, let me just remind you that David lived about 1,000 years before Jesus was on the earth. So this is 1,000 years before Jesus went to Calvary to die for our sins. And in Psalm 22, the first verse there says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, you could say, well, Jesus was quoting David from, the, from Psalm 22 when he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or you could say just the opposite, that David knew that Jesus would utter these words a thousand years before he did so and included it in this psalm. It's amazing, isn't it? Verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 22, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verses 14 and following, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Come on now. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Well, again, these are specific details related to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ written by King David a thousand years before Jesus was on the earth. And so that's an astonishing, an astonishing prophecy. That's, that's remarkable. And so we pause just to acknowledge that. And, and of course, having acknowledged this amazing prophetic tendency, then we move to the 23rd Psalm, the next Psalm in the order. And, and this is the Psalm that most of us are familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down. And, and so we're aware of this. In verse 4 of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So here we find a personal shepherd, King David now prophesying a thousand years before Jesus, talking about an intimate Savior who goes with me even through death itself. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, and, and so he makes my enemies kneel down at my feet and watch as I am blessed of God. So Psalm 22, very clearly a prophetic, a prophetic image of the crucifixion. Then Psalm 23, the intimate shepherd who is with us all the way to the end. And now to the 24th Psalm. And this is a shocking and amazing psalm from David. It was 
It was put to music back in the day. David not only wrote the lyrics to this wonderful psalm, but he also put music to it. So you can imagine the nation of Israel assembling and the great choirs assembled and all of them practiced and trained around Psalm 24. And if you can imagine that, you can hear the great traditional choir begin with the grandeur of Almighty God. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Can you, can you hear the, the, the great hundreds of voices in a choir singing these lofty, these lofty lyrics? For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So here we have God who has made everything awesome in power, majestic in every way, unapproachable in greatness, and, and the grandness of the presentation from this choir. Uh, perhaps then just the male voices in the choir, be, picking it up from verse 3. The whole theme in this verse now becomes the, the feeling of separation that we have some, from such a great God. He's unapproachable. He dwells in light. He's an awesome God, and, and he is so great, and we are so little, and he's so big, and we are so small. And so verse 3 says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? In, in other words, who will go for us into his presence? He's so great. We're so inadequate. We're so unworthy. Uh, who, who indeed is worthy to stand before a God? Who spoke in the whole earth, took form? Who stands on the firmament and holds the sun in the palm of his hand? It's a great question. Who will receive the blessing of our posterity? Who indeed will go into his presence and find for us righteousness and peace and redemption and reconciliation? Who will represent us before such a great and holy God? Can you feel the drama? I mean, it's just very dramatic, very, very big picture, very powerful. And then as we get to verse 4 of Psalm 24, maybe a solo voice comes in. Maybe it's the voice of an angel or the voice of a mezzo-soprano and maybe just a moderate tone, volume. And it says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. In response to the question, who will go for us? Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false? One who has never done anything deceitful or wicked, whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure. He will go for us. And so we have some hope, but now this, this movement, it, it changes, it's, it's subtle. I, imagine if you can, the orchestra and the, and the choir adjusting to the mood, the, the music becomes more melancholy now because the question is asked, who will, as, who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who will go for us? And, and then the response, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, but the music turns melancholy because it's realized that there is no one found among men, one such as this. Who will go then? We need someone who will go straight through, straight through, if you will, the veil of separation into the very presence of God into, in whom we see splendor and glory and grace. And again, the voice asks, who will go for us? Very melancholy tone because no one is found worthy. No one is adequate. Verse 5 then, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. The male chorus again, perhaps, verse 6, such is the generation 
of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. We are waiting for him, this one who will be declared worthy, this one who has clean hands, this one who has a pure heart, this one who is unique and different from all of the rest of humanity, the one, who's, the one who is found, who can accommodate this task of going into the presence of such a great God to make amends for humanity, to reconcile us to this great God. And so is, such, is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Perhaps the next voice you hear, and let me just remind you, this is a thousand years, these words from Psalm 24, a thousand years before Jesus is on the earth. But the Bible says that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is as a day. So just imagine now, just a day later, and Jesus now is awakening from death. It's resurrection morning, and Jesus is coming out of the tomb. And the first person he meets is a woman named Mary. And here he is, and from a distance, she doesn't recognize him. And she says to him from a distance, because the body's missing, she's come there to make further preparations. And she says to this man, if you've taken him somewhere, please tell me where you've placed him. She's, she's distraught. She is virtually on the edge of hysteria. She's filled with this grief and sadness, this sense of loss. And then she hears Jesus say her name, Mary. Mary. Now she knows him. Now she recognizes him. And, and the impulse of her love and devotion and affection is to rush towards him, to reach for him, to touch him, I mean, can you imagine how surreal that might be? I mean, you can't get, can't get your mind around it. A moment when you, you know that Jesus is dead, you saw him dead, you saw him crucified and dead, and now you're there to tend to the body. But now you see him alive and speaking to you, and your impulse is to rush to him and to embrace him. And he says to her, don't touch me, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. That's the phrase he uses. I've not yet ascended. What is he talking about? He said, I've got something to do, something so huge, something so cosmic, so transcendent, so magnificent, so holy, so prophesied, about to be fulfilled. So he says, go and tell my friends, go to Galilee, and once I've done what I have to do, I will come to them, but don't hinder me now. We now arrive to this point in Psalm 24, and I want us to see it together. Look on the screen with me at Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10. And again, let's read these verses together out loud. Are you ready? Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Now here's the second triumphant 
entry that Jesus makes. It's just a week later from the one we rehearsed on that little colt. But now post-resurrection, he makes his way and he arrives in heaven as the king of glory. He arrives in heaven as the king of glory. Now Mary rushes to tell the others. But then Jesus begins to move through the veil. Now think about this. Use your imagination with me. He moves through the veil that separates time and space and eternity. He's transformed. He's the resurrected, glorified Christ. He's no longer the crucified rabbi. But now he becomes the king of glory. He is brilliant. He is resplendent. He is stepping now through the paper-thin wall of the twin dimensions of the universe, that which separates the physical earthly realm where we live in these bodies and the spiritual eternal realm. And by the way, the veil between here and there is very, very thin, very, very thin, dimensionally different and very, very close. Where is heaven? It's just right there. It's just beyond where I can reach. Because I, as it turns out, I cannot touch the spirit. I cannot touch the eternal with my flesh. Not designed for it. Can't quite reach it. But con, contrasting to that, the spirit can penetrate the flesh. And that's good news because that means Jesus can live in us. And we can be empowered by his spirit. And we can live according to that power. So Jesus now steps through the paper-thin wall. And when he walks through to the other side, suddenly he becomes who he really is. He becomes in reality who he actually is and who he has always been. He is the king. He is mighty. He is powerful. And as he moves toward the throne of God, imagine this with me. Angels begin to gather around him. He's back. The prince has returned. The king is about to be crowned. <laughs> the subjects of heaven begin gathering from the four corners of the kingdom. Angels are singing, maybe dancing. The glory of God, the presence of God is intensifying. And now Jesus, in this second tri triumphal entry, begins to approach the unapproachable walls of heaven. And there is probably some angelic guard up on the wall in front of the gates. He sees the crowd, the light approaching, he hears the sound, and then suddenly from below in this glorious procession, a voice cries out. We have just read this verse 7 in your hearing. Lift up the gates, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory will come in. And the angel whose commission it is to keep the doors of heaven shut, shouts back, who is this king of glory? Verse 8, and the answer, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Verse 9, so lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Open the gates. The king has arrived, the king of glory. Again, from this stunned angel on the wall, verse 10, who is he? This king of glory? They said, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. And suddenly, the gates of heaven are thrown open, 
And the word which was God and was with God, which became flesh and dwelt among men, that came into his own, and his own received him not, that endured 30 years of waiting, subject to the laws of life and physics, who endured three years of ministry, who endured the cross, who endured death and the grave. Suddenly, he enters back into the heaven from which he has come, the preexistent, co-eternal second person of the Trinity, the Word, no longer flesh, but the King of glory, who is mighty in battle. And he enters the halls of heaven. Can you imagine the angels are cheering? The throngs are adoring. The old covenant saints are in exaltation. He's back. There he is. He's back. Look, the prince has returned. He's home. He's come back. Can you see Moses and Elijah grabbing each other, saying, there he is. He's back. Can you, can you see? Can you see the the Old Testament saints, Joseph and Jeremiah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He finds God the Father as he enters into heaven, sitting on the throne of judgment. Before him is the Ark of the Covenant, and contained therein is the law, if you can remember, which condemns every single one of us. You can summarize the entire Old Testament law in one phrase, Thou shalt not. And guess what? You and I have broken every single one of those laws many, many times. Every one of us broken every one of them. The angels now peer down upon the tablet of judgment, which is the law which condemns every man and every woman. And here the judgment seat, not in the tabernacle of the wilderness of Moses, you know, that wooden box that God instructed Moses to construct and into which Moses placed the, the, the tablets, the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments that dwelt in the tabernacle, this tent in the wilderness under Moses. And it's not in the Holy of Holies, in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Not now. In this moment, it is the tabernacle of heaven, a place not made with human hands. So this is a cosmic reality that has happened, which is hidden from us while we live in this dimension of earth and space and time. This is the dimension of God, who is a consuming fire, who dwells in light and unapproachable splendor. This is Almighty God. And Jesus comes walking up the center aisle, approaching his Father, seated upon the throne of judgment. His Hands now contain a golden bowl, and in it, the blood of an eternal sacrifice, his own blood. And he lifts it before the Father, and he simply says, this is everything required. And he takes the bowl, and he pours the blood on the judgment seat resting atop the Ark of the Covenant and sits the bull aside and ascends to the throne at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and a holy hush comes over the eternal kingdom. And in essence, the moment says, now, rest on that. Be satisfied with that. Be assured in that. Friends, let me remind you today that the resurrection isn't just the simple proof that Christ is stronger than Rome 
or it's not some simple proof that resurrection power is greater than the law or any kind of religion. It is rather the doorway through which Jesus stepped to claim our inheritance for us. Did not he say, now I go to prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place for you, will I not come again to receive you unto myself, and where I am there you may be also? Did he not say, neither let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid? Did he not say, rest in this, rest on my finished work on your behalf to secure your eternal life? And so we find in this powerful psalm the second entry of triumph by a conquering Savior. His name is Jesus. We come now to the third triumphal entry. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. I'm going to put these words on the screen for us so that we can read them together. Are you ready? Let's read out loud together. Ready? I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse. Notice, we're not on a, we're not on a donkey anymore. <laughs> Whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on it that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords, glory to God. We live in a time and a day when people have rejected the even notion that God exists. More and more people in our world now say there is no such thing as God. Everything we see, everything we experience in our three-dimensional world is the result of coincidence, happenstance. An accumulation of this and that over the course of a long, long time. And poof, here we are. There are people also who live in our world today who perceive themselves as spiritual. They might say, I, I believe in some higher power. I believe that perhaps God exists, but God's not really interested all that much in me or in us. And I like to think that I'm a spiritual person, you know, I love to be in nature, or I love the arts, or I love some other connection that makes me feel a spiritual side of me, and somehow that's, that's a satisfying way to live. Very few of which, though, believe that at any point, now or in eternity, there's going to be any accountability for who we have been and how we have lived and the choices we have made, that somehow God would never be upset with me for doing something that makes me happy, that he would, never, he would never find any fault in me pursuing the things that I enjoy most and how I feel like my heart is leading me. 
But what we've just read in Revelation 19, I, I want you to know that from my perspective, this is not an allegory. This is not some fantastic story that someone's created for a movie scene. This is an actual event that will actually, literally, physically, in reality, happen someday. That the same Jesus who came via that virgin mother 2,000 years ago will again return to this earth, and he will do so triumphantly, and he will rule the earth with a rod of iron, and he will return the next time to judge the nations. And trust me when I tell you, He's got everything it takes to pull that off. And for people who think that they can live their life mocking God and mocking his word and mocking his will and his ways, will have an oh stink moment <laughs> when Jesus comes back again. Now, I'm not saying that to put anyone down or to accuse anyone of misguided worldview. I'm simply suggesting to you that Jesus made a triumphant entry into Jerusalem one day and he was the king. And he made another triumphant entry into heaven about a week later and he was the king of glory. And when he comes back to this earth the next time with 10,000s of his saints and the armies of heaven, he'll come as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And there won't be any question about who he is and what role he has to play. For every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Now we know that in due course then, course of time, judgment day will come. Judgment day will come on everyone who plots and schemes against God and his people. The book of Revelation makes it very clear. But let me just remind you of what day we're in today. This day, this moment, this is the time for reconciliation. This is not the time for vengeance. I have good news for you today. It's good news. This is a time for preparing people for the blessed return of Christ. We live in a day of violence and division and hatred and betrayal. But let me remember that today, this day, is a day of God's favor. Our job then is to mend the broken, to heal the sick, to give recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Holy Week. And in God's plan, he wants to insert into us an offering of his grace and mercy into the certainty of the judgment that all of us deserve. God has good news for us, that he has made a way for us in Jesus Christ. And the invitation is extended to everyone to receive that love and mercy and to avoid the horrible judgment which is to come. Could I just invite you today to think about these things, pray about these things, to consider these things, and most importantly, to appreciate the opportunity of this day for the love and mercy of God to be extended to you. And that none of us today are going to get what we deserve. But instead, God is going to love us and accept us and forgive us. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't it good news? I promise you the day is coming 
when this opportunity will be gone. But for today, the invitation is extended. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? I'd like for you to just to stop and for those of you who, who know Jesus Christ today and you have the assurance of your forgiveness, could I invite you to praise him in a way that's meaningful to you? Maybe that's in silence or with humility. Maybe you'd like to contemplate your own faith today. Could I ask you, is your faith, is your faith in place? Is it strong? Is it growing? Does it provide you with hope? Could I encourage you to praise him with uplifted hearts or hands or faces? Praise him today for what he endured. The stripes on his back, the beating, the scourging, the marring beyond human recognition. Praise him for the cross, his death, the grave. Praise him today in great and deep gratitude. Praise him as the one who has gone before us, before a holy and terrifying God, as one who has clean hands and pure heart, who has received blessing from the Lord and vindication from God. Praise God. Praise him for becoming for us the perfect and complete satisfaction for our sin. Praise him that we are now the generation of those who seek him. Today's a day of opportunity to say yes. We have the astounding opportunity to say, thank you, God, for your amazing offer of love and forgiveness. Friends, the morning of the resurrection, Mary heard Jesus call her name. Do you hear him calling your name today? Do you hear him calling for you? If you do, can you say yes to his forgiveness, his mercy, the gift of eternal life? Praise him today that the ancient gates have been lifted and the king of glory has entered into the most holy place and offered up his own blood on our behalf. And in all of that, we can praise him for his peace. Peace in our heart, in our mind, our soul. Peace with God. This has enabled able us to find his rest. The Selah, rest in this. Be confident in this. Rest in the finished work of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you today. We give you thanks. We honor you. We extol you. We bless you. We acknowledge you as King of kings, Lord of lords. We acknowledge you as sovereign over all of our lives, that you are great, and you once and for all has satisfied the penalty of our sins, satisfied the wrath and judgment of Almighty God, and now we find peace and we find hope. Praise God. Thank you. Now for all of these things, oh God, we give you thanks and pray them in Jesus' name.
And the people said, Amen. Would you stand with us?